Well, hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Luke. I'm going to be reading Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, in any, in any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in the Spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Here ends the reading. Thanks, Luke. On, on Friday, my wife, Ronnie, she got a new family organizing calendar in the mail. She's a big fan of that kind of organizing stationary type stuff. And those kind of things often come with little kind of freebies, extras. And this one came with a card with a motivational quote on it that came along with this calendar. Uh, maybe you like those kind of things as well and you, you like the kind of little encouraging messages and quotes and sample products that come often with these things. But here's what this card that Ronnie got in her calendar says. It says, honour yourself completely, do what works for you and leave everything that doesn't behind. <laughs> what? <laughs> honour yourself completely do what works for you and leave everything that doesn't behind. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe this is what they've sent as an encouragement to my wife as she tries to organise our family life together. <laughs> to honour herself and do what works for her and leave everything else behind. I, I don't know, maybe that kind of thing, maybe it kind of sounds vaguely nice to you. That, uh, evidently that's why they send it out, right? It kind of sounds nice. But to me, that actually just sounds like comically self-focused and naive. And we see this kind of thing all the time, right, where, where items or quotes or sentiments, sayings, they, they express these deeper values in our culture that might actually be quite different to the values that you, if you're a Christian, and that I hold. I guess sometimes in, in our culture, in all cultures, full of people that are created, made in the image of God. Sometimes culture expresses the heart of God in, in wonderful ways. In, in Australian culture, things that we kind of think of as Australian values, like equality and compassion, mateship, that those kind of values are great. They honor God. Our cultures all around the world do similarly. But some values of our culture that get expressed in little things like this and, like, and in cultures everywhere, are actually quite unlike God's values. 
and perhaps even in opposition to God's vision for human life and flourishing. Sometimes, perhaps this is most of the time, the the culture that we reflect, the kind of worldview that we live out reflects something of God's heart as all humans reflect something of him in the world that he's placed us in and, and yet falls short of God's design as human kind of limitations and, and human sin pollute what we create. I like this motivational quote trying to motivate you to selfishness and to no resilience or thought for others. The way that we're shaped to see the world might be well-intentioned but imperfect. And, and tonight in Philippians 2, what we're going to see is we're going to see God's word subvert and critique that kind of cultural understanding of human community and our place in it. Philippians 2, instead of reflecting the culture, is going to offer us God's vision, his radical vision for human community and the place that you and I hold in it. And we will know as we explore Philippians 2 that it is God's vision because it is God's pattern. It's what he did when he entered human community in the person of Jesus. He shows us what it looks like to relate to other people in the way God designed us to. He shows us what human relationships are meant to look like. And the vision, here's the the kind of summary, the vision is God's people, that's us, giving ourselves up for each other and sharing deep unity together as we do. So that's what we're, we're exploring together tonight. Uh, if you've got the passage in a Bible in front of you or in the uh, news sheet you got on the way in, why don't you kind of track through it with me as we go. So Paul, who's writing Philippians, he begins with this kind of passionate and personal call to God's people to have unity together, to be one together. So he says from verse 1, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. If you have any encouragement, any comfort, any sharing in the spirit, any tenderness and compassion, if the gospel makes any difference to you, Paul is saying, if knowing Jesus makes any difference to your life, then let it be this. This is really important. What's the call? What's the difference that Jesus should make? Verse 2 there, be like-minded, have the same love, be one in spirit and of one mind. It's a call to, to unity, to oneness together. And see, the gospel does change us. It does make any difference. Following Jesus, having his spirit live inside us, transforms us as people. It makes you different to what you were before. Or if you've always been a Christian, different to what you would have been without God. And we receive all these blessings of the gospel, all these resources, right, like God's word to guide us, God's people to to minister to us and care for us, 
God's spirit in sustaining and sanctifying us. Here, we see drawn out the the encouragement and the comfort which the gospel brings us. And the spirit we share, the tenderness, the compassion which God grows in us. The gospel does make a difference. It does change us. Of course, if we have all these resources, we should expect to change. Those of you who've only recently come to believe in Jesus and follow him, what changes have you seen? In the the kind of early strides of the lifelong race that you'll now run with Jesus, what early changes has God been bringing about in you? Well, the the change that Paul hopes for, for us here is that we would have unity together. Being united in Christ, he says, flows out into being united with each other. The love of Jesus overflows into our love for each other. That kind of love which flows out of our love with God and his love in himself as well, that kind of love really stands out. That really makes us different. And especially when we look around us, right, and we see in our culture growing crises of isolation and loneliness. We see kind of cultural division and, and conflict. This unity in the gospel is a wonderful blessing to us and a wonderful witness to the world. But it's, e- it's easy to use that word of unity, right? It's probably worth pausing for a moment and considering what that actually is and what it isn't. So gospel unity, first, it's not, it's not uniformity. Having unity in the gospel doesn't mean that we demand that everyone conforms to a tight and rigid set of acceptable opinions and behaviours. Right? Gospel unity doesn't mean just gathering around ourselves people who are like us and forming this kind of comfortable little echo chamber and then calling it unity. We can, we can kind of back each other up make ourselves feel good as we look down on people who are outside of our unity bubble. Right, that's, that's not unity. I was at this big uh, conference, a church conference a few years ago. It was a, a Pentecostal conference. And they had this moment that was kind of supposed to be this incredible, significant moment of church unity, breaking down divisions and healing historical conflicts for the whole church across Melbourne to come together and and unite and pray together. And then they got all the church leaders up on the stage to lead and to represent this time. And every single one of them was Pentecostal. I remember in that that moment thinking, "This this is a very limited expression of church unity that we're seeing here, right? Unity's something different to that. But equally though, unity isn't just the same as our kind of cultural value on diversity. Diversity, that's a key value that drives Australia, right? It drives organizations and policies, media, public discourse in all kinds of ways. And that that value on on diversity in in its kind of God-honoring in a a good sense, calls each person, each structure of society to to welcome, uh, to, to honor other people. But what we see time and time again, I think, maybe 
you can observe this yourself, is that an emphasis on diversity without a unifying narrative, without a unifying worldview or, or, or value, it struggles to hold itself together and not just fold under the weight of its own expectations. Without unity, there's, there's no great future in diversity except at best kind of parallel lives and, and at worst kind of conflict and culture wars. People continue to live their lives with different narratives, with different scripts, with different values and goals and love and hates and, and ends. With kind of worldly diversity, the best that we can hope for really is tolerance as people groups live parallel or divergent lives. Unity's not uniformity. It's not just diversity. It's something different to that. It's not a narrow echo chamber. It's not pluralism in which there's nothing holding people together. Rather, as the writer A.W. Tozer wrote, unity in the church is like 100 pianos tuned to the same tuning fork and so tuned to each other. They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshippers together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they, than they could possibly be were they to focus on each other and turn their eyes away from God. With Christ at the center of who we are, we share deep and enduring unity. We find it by looking at Jesus. And that's what we want to do. That's who we want to be here at UniChurch. Because we have lots of difference, lots of diversity among us. But among the people sitting around you tonight, there are people who grew up in Anglican, Pentecostal, Presbyterian, Baptist, Independent, Catholic, other churches. And praise God, there are lots of people in the room who grew up in no church at all. There are people from Melbourne, there are people from country Victoria, there are people from other rural areas around Australia, people from Sydney and Brisbane and Adelaide and Perth and Darwin, people from Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia, China, Korea, further beyond. There are undergrads, postgrads, workers, men, women, single, dating, married, parents. If you're new this year, maybe if tonight's the first night that you've joined us, I hope that you will come to share the joy that I do when I see that richness in our community life together. But all of that means nothing if it's not held together by unity in the gospel. Unity in our love for Jesus, our trust in his work to bring us salvation, his spirit living in us, our deep desire to see the world come to know him. That's what unites us here. That's what makes us who we are. Paul, God, desires unity among his people. But what kind of people can have that? What kind of people bring that about? What, what value or virtue or behavior brings that about? Well, we see it's humility. Humility. I wonder when you hear that word humility, what, what do you think of? Maybe as, as we sit here now, try and, try and write a very brief definition in your head of what humility is. 
Humility is, according to Scripture here, it's the thing that brings about unity in the body of Christ. Because to have humility, to be humble, is to be like Christ. Have a look at uh, verses 3 and 4 with me in your Bible or the new sheet there. It says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. If you feel a little unsure about what humility is, if that kind of task of creating a little definition for it feels vague or confusing, here's a great definition in this passage for us. Value each other above yourselves. That's humility. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. That's humility. You may well have heard it. It's often quoted. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. The the Christian writer Tim Keller, he expands that idea a little bit. He says, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Another writer, John Dixon, he writes that humility is the noble choice to forego your status and deploy your resources or, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. That's humility. And in the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman world that Paul's writing in here, humility was a despised trait. Humility was not a good thing. It was viewed as a sign of weakness. Strong leaders were not humble leaders. Society did not operate on putting, people, putting one another before themselves. The, the word meant something like, like crushed or debased. It was associated with failure and shame. Aristotle had insisted that honour and reputation were two of the highest things you could attain for yourself, the opposite of humility. And yet Paul, as he writes here to this community of believers in Philippi, he urges them to humility. Maybe if, if that concept still feels a little vague, we find a helpful resource in the passage, a picture of the opposite to give us clarity on what humility is. What does verse 3 say? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Right, so if you have humility over here, then on this side you have selfish ambition and vain conceit. A selfish ambition, that's, that's to prioritize your own goals and desires above others. It's putting yourself here and others there. That's the kind of thing that we very quickly notice in other people, but maybe find a little harder to identify in ourselves, right? I wonder, can you see that in yourself? If you live by selfish ambition, that might look like relentlessly climbing, sometimes standing on other people to get higher. In selfish ambition, failure is terrifying and your sense of worth goes up or down with your success. And vain conceit similarly opposes humility. 
Vain conceit is a, a fixation, an unreasonable focus on ourselves, how people perceive us, how we're presented to the world. Right? And these, these two, selfish ambition and vain conceit, they're a lot like, like Instagram. They're about presenting the best version of yourself, right? about attracting praise and recognition, about building your profile, about making yourself look as good as possible. But humility is not like that. Humility is, is genuine. It's self-forgetting. It's a desire for the good of others and a priority on others in your decision-making, in your time, in your love. And if selfish ambition and vain conceit are like Instagram, then humility isn't like a humble brag. Right? It's not doing good for others in order to feel satisfied about how good you are or to attract praise for how much you're serving others. Genuine humility just doesn't even have yourself in the picture. There was this woman, Mary Sessor. She lived in Scotland in the 19th century. She was really wealthy, upwardly mobile, in upper class of society. She had the world available to her. But she heard Jesus call to deny herself, to take up her cross and to follow him. And for her, that looked like leaving her whole life behind to serve and proclaim the gospel in Nigeria. She went on her own at 27 in the 18th century to Nigeria and spent the rest of her life there saving children from practices of witchcraft and preaching the good news of Jesus. She was able to go to places that every male missionary before her had been killed. She eventually died quietly from disease. She left behind all the prospects of her life in England for a life of humility, valuing others above herself. But that's humility. Let's, let's imagine something together to help us kind of get this gospel humility that we're called to. If you were to meet a truly humble person, we wouldn't come away from that meeting thinking that they were humble, I reckon. Or they wouldn't be always telling us that they were a nobody, right? Or, or that they're, they're, they're less, or that they're not very good. Because a person who keeps saying they are nobody is, is actually a self-obsessed person. Right? The thing that we would remember, the thing that we would be struck by from meeting a truly humble person is how much they seem totally interested in us. Humility is, is just not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things to myself, to relate everything to myself. That kind of humility, it's, it's the end of thoughts like, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Where do I fit amongst these people? Do I want to be here? How is this affecting my, my image? True gospel humility, humility means I just stop connecting every experience and, and relationship and moment to myself. That writer, Tim Keller, who I quoted before, he, he calls this kind of humility the freedom of self-forgetfulness. I love that because it is freedom, isn't it? 
a life where we're not focused on ourselves but on others, free from selfish ambition and vain conceit. That's, that's freedom. Let's keep imagining. Let's imagine not just what the kind of person is who has true humility, but what the kind of community is like that has true humility. What do you think a community of humility would look like? I think a community of humility would be one in which the vulnerable are cared for, whether that's the poor, those battling their mental health, the lonely, the sick, as everyone looks after the interests of the others. A community of humility, I think, would be one in which our own vulnerabilities, our our anxieties, our traumas, our limitations don't stop us from thriving or serving as we're all served and loved and so empowered to extend that to one another as well. I think a community of humility would be an active community because everyone rocks up looking for ways to serve, looking for ways to contribute and help. There's no passengers in a truly humble community. No consumer Christians just rocking up to receive and leave. A community of humility, I think, is a well-led community because those with the gifts and character to lead, they do so. Remember that true humility isn't thinking less of yourself. If God gifts a humble person to lead, then they lead. And they do it with a heart of service, a self-forgetful focus on others, on authentic ministry, not on platform building or image crafting. And as we've seen, a community of humility is a united community, one with unity around the shared service of Jesus and one another and and the world. I, I don't know about you, but that sounds like the kind of community that I want to be part of, right? That sounds like the kind of church we want to keep building here at Uni Church. If that's the kind of community that you want to see here, if that's the kind of community that you want to be part of, then let me encourage you to think about what you might do towards that kind of community. Because growing a community of humility like that, it starts with you as much as it starts with anyone else. What would it look like for you to value others above yourself in your, your belonging, your participation at church? How might that change the way you think about what's important at church or the way that you serve the community at church? What would it look like for you to not look to your own interests but to the interests of others? How could you care for those around you with radical, self-forgetful humility? Maybe that vision for a community united through humility is one that sounds great, but feels unrealistic. Because it's hard to be humble in the true sense, right? It's hard to put the needs of others before your own. It's not always the way that our hearts naturally go. There's a reason they put quotes like that in, in calendars. People like to hear those messages of putting themselves first. but we can build that kind of community. We can be that kind of church because 
there is someone who is our example, our perfect example of humility. And he's the same one who gives us power to grow and to live out gospel humility. From verse 6, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the pattern and he's the power for true humility because he was so focused on others that he stood up from his throne in heaven and lowered himself to human form and even to death for our sake. I talk about self-forgetfulness, talk about selflessness, talk about humility. There it is in its ultimate form. Not, not giving away his divinity, but, but employing his divinity for our good. Jesus comes as a poor, rural man, right? But when people worship him, he commends them. Jesus' humility is not that kind of, oh, I'm no good, don't look at me kind of humility, right? It's, it's that truer, using everything to serve others kind of humility, the one who deserves all glory, all honor, all good things, using it for us. If you're here tonight and, and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, but you can see something good in this vision for humility that we've been talking about, then know that it's good because it's being like Jesus. It's Jesus' humility that took him from heaven down to the cross. That's what's at the center of our faith. This is how he made a way for us to come back to God. This is how he made a way for the evil, which is under all the evil in this world, to be dealt with. This is the way that he's fixing everything that's broken by giving himself up for us. Therefore, verse 9, it's not the end of the story, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. After lowering himself for our sake, Jesus was glorified by God, raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. And even in his glorification, even in that, he's humble. He brings us with him. In his new life, we have new life. In his glory, we look forward to glory. For Jesus, humility is the path to glory. And what does Jesus say? He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me.
When we demonstrate humility, we follow the path of Jesus. And it's a path that ends in God's glory and presence. I hope you can see how how countercultural this is, how far this is from that motivational card. We live in a culture that says, be true to yourself, express yourself, find yourself, love yourself, advance yourself, help yourself. Jesus says, deny yourself and follow me. Jesus' call is a call to die to yourself and find life in him. Jesus' call is a call to give up everything, to gain everything. Jesus' call is a call to lose your life and find it in him. Jesus calls you to align every part of your life and yourself to him. Do you see how countercultural and, and counterintuitive that is? It's not normal to give up everything for someone else in humility. But it's what Jesus does for us and it's what he demands from us. So if you want to be humble, if you want to live a life of humility like the life of Jesus and a life of humility which, which blesses the unity of the church, I've got a, like a, a diagnostic question, a question for you to ask yourself. What's the, what's the trajectory of your life? What's the trajectory of your life? Is it onwards and upwards? Is it climbing? Or is it self-giving, self-lowering, humble towards glory? Is the trajectory of your life a climb through the rungs of society and its achievements? Or is it an ever-developing and growing shift of focus away from yourself and towards others? When you look at your study and your career choices, are you looking at how to climb? How to start strong and then ascend the professional ladder and reach the mountain peak where you'll be admired and rich and secure? Or are you considering how you can give yourself, all of yourself, for the sake of others in ever-increasing giving with all the talents and experiences and opportunities that God gives you? Can you see the, the subversion of the narrative for life there? Lots of us are hitting uni for the first time. Or maybe we're hitting our final year and making decisions about what to do beyond. Or we're hitting the workforce and working out what that looks like for us. Whatever your circumstances this year, how can you see them through the lens of serving others? What different choices might you make? And what same choices might you make, but in a very different way, for very different reasons? If we can grow together towards being a community of people, giving ourselves up for the good of others, Imagine what a community would be. Why don't I pray that we would be that community tonight? Let's pray. Jesus, 
you gave yourself for us. Help us to give ourselves for you and for each other. God, empower us to live lives of humility after the pattern of Jesus by the power of Jesus for your glory in our lives and in the whole world. Amen.